content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. All right, everybody, uh, welcome to Doc Talks. I'm Doc Brian. Today we have a guest, Alicia. Did I say that right? You did. All four syllables. All four syllables. I'm from Arkansas. We don't know what syllables are. <laughs> right. <so. laughs> Didn't make it into the curriculum. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We kind of got to fake it till we make it kind of ordeal here. As, as our guests know, and as hopefully you being subscribed to our podcast know, we talk about people, their trials or tribulations and their triumphs and mental health conditions that, that follow all of that. And so today, I just want to get a little bit to know about you. I know that you uh, have a podcast here on Be Frank Muscle Spasms. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds horrible, muscle spasms. It is a delight, and uh, we can't <laughs> wait for you to binge listen to all of them. <laughs> well, be sure to do that. Be sure to uh, check that out here on the Be Frank Network. And, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy it, unless you're somebody like me. I'll probably sweat just you know, listening <laughs> to it. Uh, yeah, studies have proven that if you listen to three episodes a day, you will lose five pounds. Well, yeah. I might need to listen to like eight episodes a day yeah. or nine. Start start there. Yeah, yeah. start small. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, I, I in talking to you just a little bit, uh, as I mentioned to you, I, I pastor a Baptist church, but I may be one of the most low-key pastors that, that anyone would meet. Uh, but But then, you know, I kind of have that disconnect between ministry and and psychology, but from what I understand, you were raised in a a very religious home. Yes, I mean, when you think religious, you think like the hardcore Catholic. It, it wasn't exactly like that. My parents are Pentecostal. Dad was a pastor for my formative years, and my mom led like worship in church and stuff. So I was raised like super Christian, very sheltered, like not allowed to listen to secular music. And yeah, there there was definitely a lot of barriers that I didn't realize were there until I was to like a peek my head out into the <laughs> real world for a second. And I went to a Christian school from uh, kindergarten to or eighth grade. Sorry, we're in America. Eighth grade. <laughs> I'm Canadian. Hello. <laughs> well, uh, that's that's okay. So I, I was raised in a Pentecostal church as well, uh, but converted to Baptist. Uh, but I, I did notice that growing up, there was just seemed like so many rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. You know that that there wasn't there wasn't such thing as grace. It was you did this or this happened. Right. Uh, so how do you kind of feel like all of that wrapped together has affected your adult life? Honestly, I think I grew up really emotionally stunted because of it. There was just this like looming feeling that feelings that I had or thoughts that I had um, were sinful. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really share those with anyone. I never felt comfortable with them because I thought I was like this demon child. If I had, you know, if I had an emotional reaction I wasn't familiar with or it made me uh, clam up a lot. 
right. as far as like accessing my emotions and then getting into like my teenage years, early 20s. I just no no real access to them. Like I I can't. It's so hard to hit them. Right. And I feel like I shouldn't have to dig. Like if I'm sad, I feel like I should be able to cry. But I still can't really cry when I'm sad. Mm-hmm. I cry when I watch the finale of The Office. <laughs> but, you know, if something... Who didn't cry? I know. I know. I'm crying just thinking about Jim and Pam's wedding, too. Forget about it. Do you think that may have... I've noticed that people who grow up in in conservative, super conservative Christian homes, there's no middle ground when it comes to emotion. There either is a lot or there's hardly any at all. Mm-hmm. Do you think that kind of played into to that as an adult now? You mean like from my parents? Right, right. And you're, and you're raising. Yeah, I, I guess it could have played into my adult life. Like I'll just keep everything in. I mean, I've gotten a lot better with it right. since I've been with my therapist for three years. Wait, where where did I start that sentence? I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> I totally fine. lost it. That's fine. Uh, so uh, let me rephrase this question. When uh, growing up in a conservative Christian home, there is either overly emotional, if there is such a thing, or there's no emotion at all. Right. But does that kind of come from the thought of being in the Christian home, especially and I don't want to stereotype charismatic or Pentecostal, but it is what it is, Mm -hmm. that the thought that if things are going bad, that you're not being obedient and that you're not full of the spirit per se. Yeah. I guess when you put it like that, um, I blame myself for everything Mm -hmm. and I make sure everyone is taken care of before I take care of myself because that's what you're supposed to do. right? Right. It's like, you're supposed to be, you know, selfless. And if you have a selfish moment by taking care of yourself or by like, you know, not not responding the way someone wants to, then then you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely carried over. But then you you lock all that stuff in and then it comes out in really stupid ways mm-hmm. like rebellion or getting really mad at stupid things. So when you get mad at really as you said, stupid things, do you feel it coming or does it just happen and here we are? It'll like grow for a bit and then I'll get really, really mad. And then I don't know, it's it's the same with every emotion with this like emotional stuntedness. It just stops. Mm-hmm. I'll get really mad and then I'll be completely numb. It just so, goes away. So are you one of those people that get completely mad and then two or three minutes later, it's like nothing ever happened? Yeah, for for a lot of things. Do you think that's healthy? No. Okay. I was just making sure. (laughs) I've gotten a lot better with it. I'm talking about previous self who uh, wasn't aware of all of the ridiculous ways I was dealing with trauma. I understand. Uh, Trauma, of course, is difficult for all of us to deal with uh, in different ways due to the course of the trauma and what has taken place. In growing up in this Christian home, I'm sure there was a point in time where you kind of rebelled. Oh, yeah. So tell me a little bit about Mm. that. Well, um, I was a firstborn. I have a younger brother, and my rules were definitely a lot stricter than his. But by the time I learned about secular music, (laughs) um, it kind of all all went downhill from there. I was like this gothy punk rock kid and I had these like hoodlum friends and 
I would sneak out in the middle of the night and we would like go drinking and bonfires when I was like 14. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got into to drugs pretty early. Like they never ran my life, but I tried I tried a lot of drugs for a teenager. And when I talk to people now, they're like, wait, what? You you did all that? Right. right. Like right after puberty? Like, yeah, what? You you didn't? <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing about this is that, you know, th I'm sure you're familiar with the term sowing your wild oats, that when we are encased in this, you cannot, you cannot, then that makes us want to do it even more. Right. Um, All of it. There's on my TikTok, one of my psychology facts is that rules are made to be broken. And because there's a rule that say that we should not, it makes us want to. And the more rules that we break, the more willing we are to break other rules that we might not ever even consider. Mm -hmm. So there was a, I think I read that you kind of got into a golf type movement. So yeah. tell me about that. I Well, okay. I mean, probably because I never felt that I was good enough, like, in my family and in school and in my Christian school and stuff, I was like, okay, clearly no one in the world likes me. So I found my little like punk rock crew. We all kind of grew and got dirtier, dirtier <laughs> together. And, you know, I listened to all the angry music. I wrote poetry. I drew these like, these like sad, heart wrenching pictures beside my poems and stuff. Like I was the angstiest little thing you ever did me in your whole damn life. <laughs> Shoot. But, you know, in retrospect, I realized I was just putting all all of that on myself. I'm sure people would have liked me mm -hmm. if I made an effort, but instead I just pushed them all away with my Marilyn Manson. <laughs> well, I uh I don't do adolescent therapy, but I, I had a client once that uh, she was 23, 24 years old and had gotten into that golf style, I guess is what we should say. And I said, uh, why, why do you do that? And she said, well, it makes me feel unique, makes me kind of feel like I have purpose. Mm -hmm. And I said, so you're unique just like all of your other friends. And so did you ever feel like in that while you were separated, there still wasn't really any identity of who you were. Oh, for sure. I I don't think I've ever knew who I was mm. as a teenager specifically. But, you know, there there was like a freedom in it because if I wanted to dye my hair pink, like no one would bat an eye. And I went to this, the, the arts high school that I went to, I was in the drama program. All of the like local kids who just went to the school because they were in the area, I had to audition. I was in the area. They were all like, pink polo wearing, golf playing, blonde, beautiful people who run in slow motion. Mm -hmm. So the freedom of being the weirdo did feel a little bit, a little bit more unique than, you know. So kind of an outcast, but in a positive, positive yeah. term. Because you, you had identity without having identity. I suppose so. Yeah. How did that play out in the church if you were still, was your dad still a pastor at that time? He became a police officer. In in Canada, you have to go to a police college. Okay. So he, which should also exist here. <laughs> let's just I, just get that out there. I would agree. Yep. So he had to go to that, I think, around when I was like 10 or 11. And then he was a police officer when I was 13. So now he was this new version of strict, the like 
that scared straight strict. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. With all of the with all of the um the Christian background strictness plus cop strictness. Uh that was fun. That was super fun. Oh my god, I keep losing my train of thought. I'm so You're sorry. fine. You're fine. So with this this new level of strictness, how did that you know, because we I think psychologists would agree that who we identify as between the ages of eight and 12, 13 years old, we value process. And that's who we really feel like we are. You know, that's when we form this identity. And the only way to change our personality outside of that is through a, tra- a major traumatic life event. So within that time of 12 to, or excuse me, eight to 12 to 13, being in this kind of lifestyle, how did that kind of pour over into your adult life? I think I always kind of stayed the outcast person. You know, I my eyeliner was still always darker than everyone else's. I I still maintained an edge. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it gave me, I felt like it was becoming my own version of whatever that crazy style was. I mean, even now, like I like black. I have piercings and tattoos, but I'm just a a normal adult woman. Mm-hmm. But aspects of that style stays with me. Right. And um I like it now cuz like at the time my parents were like, "You look so ridiculous. <laughs> I want to take a photo so I can show you later when you're older." I don't know. I liked it. But I still maintain the constant, I'm an outcast, no one likes me, mental space through mm-hmm. college, through like working after that. Like I would I would make friends with people and then just for some reason stop calling them or stop texting them because I thought they probably didn't actually like me and I was bothering them. Mm-hmm. And I'm just starting to learn now that people actually like me. I'm nice. Mm-hmm. I think you're nice. Thanks. I think think. so, too. So did you kind of go through that that period of where if you text somebody and they didn't text you back within, you know, 10, 15 minutes, oh, I've done something to make them hate me? No. Was it ever that extreme? No, I'm not that person. Okay. was just just making sure here. Um, Into your adult life. Now, you were in, did you say Toronto? Yes. Okay. So you had a very successful... A theater career there, from from what I understand, Six, successful ish. So I went to the uh, the best theater school in Canada uh, at Ryerson in Toronto, and when when I got out, I was doing all these passion projects. Um, my big thing is sci fi. All I wanted to do was like be on the next Star Trek, mm-hmm. uh, and all of my theater friends were like, "Are you kidding? Don't you want to like go to <laughs> Oxford?" And I was like, "I need to be on the Sci Fi Network. That's all I want." So I did a bunch of stuff like that, um, lots of, like, leading lady features where, you know, I'd show up on a motorcycle and have a crossbow and just be that leather-clad badass killing all the bad guys. It was awesome. It gave me life. But it didn't pay well enough, so I bartended on the side. It was an exhausting time, but I loved it, and I definitely could have kept growing it. I just didn't. So tell me about the one time, if you can find one time in a role that you played that you felt like this was, you identified completely with this character and it was just the best time of your life to play that character. 
that would probably be this uh, sci-fi miniseries that turned into a feature called Haphead. Okay. The lead character, played by me, the lead actress, uh, Maxine. She was this teenager who lived with a really strict father um, in future years, in kind of this dystopian future, kind of 1984-ish. And she wanted to drop out of school and work at this video game company because she was obsessed with video games. So she gets to this video game company. Video games, you can hook them into the back of your head, kind of like the Matrix, and you can learn skills through it. So Maxine, she learns how to fight. She learns Kung Fu and then gets really into this deep underground scene of like acrobats and fighters and, you know, axe throwers, this big, crazy world of physical possibilities that you can just learn on your own. And I really liked her. She was like badass and quiet and just had a a few close friends and she loved her dad but didn't didn't love, you know, how strict he was on her and she she totally persevered at the end and she learned everything and did it all on her own. So you kind of feel like you associated her with her because that's kind of your story. Yeah, I didn't think about it till right now when I told you the plot. I haven't thought about Haphead in a while. Mm -hmm. So is it interesting to you now as we sit here to think about how the most prevalent role that you ever played is a role that has a lot of semblance to your life? Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Like, I feel like playing Maxine and there was a character afterwards, Vicky, who, who was very similar, just a loner who would take down all the bad guys and eventually, you know, end up in this group in a dystopian future. Again, I do a lot of dystopian future <laughs> stuff. Yeah, all of these, like, strong female characters who don't need help from anyone and don't like to be stuck in the pre-existing box that has been formed to keep them. Mm -hmm. I definitely... I feel like I definitely still relate to them. So I'm going to ask you the most common psychology question, <laughs> which you probably already know. How does that make you feel? <laughs> uh, no, no one's ever asked me that, which is fun. <laughs> I mean, well, there's good. a first time for everything. <laughs> yeah. No one's ever asked me that for realsies. Okay. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, I won't charge you for this. <laughs> Thank God. I didn't bring any money. I have half a BLT in my bag and that's it. I think it's great. I'm obviously really drawn to characters like that. I like characters like that in television and, you know, I they just like they give me fire, mm -hmm. you know. I I hold on to that like independent badass mentality when I go through my own life. I mean, that's just that's just one part, but when I'm feeling a little crappy, I mean, I feel like I can hold on to that and be like, no, nah, man, you're a crime fighting badass in a leather jacket with crossbows. It works. If it works, it works. Yeah. So you're able to kind of draw off of that energy to get you through tough times. I mean, I guess I think I got those roles because I already had that energy and being um, praised for my work on those, it kind of it validated that for me. Like, I can be that person. I don't need to be the quiet weirdo. I can 
do things if I want to. And so now when I want to do things, I really do them. If there's something I want, like, I'm going to get it. Right. So do you feel like you have to have that validation in order for you to continue to do whatever it is that you need to do? No. Okay. Um, But it's something that I look back on fondly and something that, like, speaks to my soul a little bit. Mm -hmm. One single character in a script cannot keep me going through everything in life, but there are definitely aspects of that since I got to experience them in a bunch of different ways that I continue to carry with me. So have you written any screenplays or scripts? Uh, Ages ago. Ages ago. Yeah. Did it give you any feeling of liberty to kind of just put emotion and feeling on paper? Not so much on paper, actually in acting for sure. And, you know, I've talked to my therapist about this, like maybe that's why I'm drawn to acting because I don't know how to feel emotions, but if I'm someone else, I can whip them up like that. It was this strange little outlet. So do you think that may be because you still don't really know who you are? I think I've got a much, much better idea now. Mm-hmm. Um, like we're talking about me pre-marriage, pre-divorce, pre-everything. Like I was just this wisp in the wind who didn't realize how fucked up. I'm sorry. Can I swear on yeah. this? You say whatever you want to okay. say. I didn't realize how fucked up I was from the way I was raised. Mm-hmm. And my parents didn't realize that they squished me down so much. Mm-hmm. And if they heard that, they would feel really bad. But now, like you said, an, an enormous trauma, you can kind of get kind of get your head on your shoulders. Like if you choose to walk through an enormous trauma and do it properly and do it in a way that that actually brings peace to you, I think it's it's much easier to find a sense of self. And now I feel like I'm just realizing who I actually am and I like it. So let's let's talk about that trauma a little bit. You long distance relationship with someone you you then married, but mm-hmm. you'd only actually personally interacted with them for what two weeks. We we long distance dated for nine months. We met at a film festival. He had a movie and I had a movie at the same festival. I thought he was cute. Took him home that night. You know whatever, and then I just we kept talking. So he would come visit me for a long weekend or a week, and I would go visit him. So it wasn't a total two weeks. But right. um, as far as extended periods of time together go, it, it wasn't really more than two, three weeks at the longest. And he proposed after nine months because we had talked about, like, what are what are we doing here? And I said, I'm, I'm not going to move to New York and ditch everything I have here on an acting visa mm-hmm. because then I can't even bartend to, like, supplement my income. And then he just, he proposed. And it was very exciting. It was this whirlwind romance. Like, you know, I'd, I was madly in love, thought about him constantly. Like, he was— Like Hallmark movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, I was— you know, just caught up in this New Yorker, you know, this like super, he's very cultured. He's like, he loves art and architecture and film. And he's, he's, he's incredibly intelligent. He's very funny, very cultured. And I got so sucked into that. I just put parts of myself aside to suit him better. And I didn't even realize I was doing it 
until I felt so suffocated by my own betrayal to myself that I couldn't possibly stay in it. So how did you, uh, when you said your own betrayal of yourself, what do, what do you mean by that? I mean, I've, through my whole life, I've changed aspects of myself to suit whoever I'm with, whether it's, you know, a romantic partner or friends or anything. Like it just, it stems back to just saying, saying what I think people want to hear because I assume people don't like me. Mm -hmm. And with men, I have always been in relationships and at the year and a half, year, year and a half mark, I hit that point where I'm like, this doesn't work. And it's never their fault. It's just like all of a sudden I realize it. It's never their fault. It's me because I didn't go into it saying, oh, by the way, I really like hiking. Oh, you know, I want you to come to the beach with me. Oh, I don't want to stay in New York for the rest of my life. Like all of these little things that I just put behind me for him, they all came over me in an absolute tidal wave. So that I feel like I betrayed myself for 25 years of my life by changing myself because I didn't think that my true version was good. And so you you morphed into who you thought they wanted you to be. Right. As, and I had no idea I was uh -huh. doing it. Right. And so, uh, you know, one thing that I, I was on a podcast uh, on the Happily Never After mm. podcast with, uh, with Mara. Mara and Joelle. And one thing that we talked about there is that within a relationship, if you are spending, you know, going to lunch or dinner more than two or three times a week, that you need to not date that person. If you are having to constantly text and call that person, then you don't need to date that person. Because what you are doing is you're investing all of your happiness into one person. And so then you come codependent on them and then you get married and, you know, there is no need to try to keep you around because you're married. And then all of this happiness and this romance is gone. Mm -hmm. And so then what happens within the marriage is you're like, wait a second, I don't like, I don't need, yes, I like you, but I don't really like doing this as much as I like doing this. Right. And and they may not even like that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, is that kind of where your marriage kind of started falling apart? Yeah. Because since we were long distance, whenever I'd go to visit him, like he'd have plans for us. We'd do things. And same thing when he came to visit me, like I'd show him around Toronto. We would like go on picnics, all of this like romantic datey things. Mm -hmm. And so we just had these bursts of intensity and then, you know, two weeks where I didn't see him, where I missed him terribly, like my heart was broken. I couldn't wait till I could ever, till I could see him again. And yeah, then I moved here and I'm a very, I'm, I'm an active person. Like I love doing things. And I was a Canadian moving to New York. New York is the big, shiny, beautiful, big apple. Like I hadn't seen any of it. So I would go for walks on my own just to like look around and I'd say, hey, I've never been to Coney Island. Do you want to go to Coney Island? Like it looks so silly and kitschy. And he'd be like, Coney Island's disgusting. Like, okay. <laughs> um, but I've want... never been. I've never been and I want to go. I don't care if it looks disgusting. Right. It's gross. 
you know, try not to step on needles, but also like it's iconic. It's Americana. Like I wanted to see these things that I've seen in movies. And since he is, you know, a native New Yorker, his family has been for like nine generations. He has this built in New Yorker um, skepticism and cynicism. So anything that I thought would be like fun to do, well, not anything um, other than like going out to to a dinner or something or, you know, those mm. the easy go to's. Right. He would just say things that kind of shut me down. And eventually I just stopped um, inviting him and I tried to, you know, make friends on my own. And uh, I finally made this one friend after being there for like a year because it's hard to make new friends, especially when, you know, you're 22 six and you just got your work permit and you have one place to go and it's your the place that you work like where where do you meet people what do you do and you're married so you can't just like go out on the town on your own because then it it looks weird but if he was there I wouldn't have been able anyway so I made this one friend Taylor and I love her dearly still whenever we would go out we would stay out all night and I never did that with my husband. And then I would get home and he'd be like, what the hell? Why were you out so late? You said you were going to lunch. I was like, we did go to lunch. It, it <laughs> you know, it spiraled out, out of control and it was really fun. Let me tell you about it. And he'd be like, can you just like tell me what, what your timing's going to be? I'm like, sorry. And now that I think about it, I was just trying to get all of that pent up energy, like needing to do things out in one night. But really it was just like, drinking and running around the city like a crazy person which is it's fun it's not everything but that's kind of how I rebelled in that relationship but do you think that all then kind of comes back from your childhood oh for sure yeah if we want to get into it what I've spoken with my therapist about is uh just this relationship with men like I keep I don't do it anymore had a tendency to just put a man that I'm with slightly above me and since I had already put him slightly above me he was this wonderful cultured intelligent guy and I thought for some reason that I wasn't girl version and since he didn't want to do the fun things that I wanted to do and there was just like a disconnect there I rebelled against him as if he was my own father and then you know I never thought I had daddy issues I was like oh you know that's that's for the girls who's like dads leave them or you know their dads pay for anything my dad's he's just like he's a nice guy he's kind of funny but really I was trained to put men a little bit above me because my dad ran my household no matter what even if he was wrong so I just I did the exact same thing that I did to my parents to my husband and he even called me on it he was like I am not your parents. You need to communicate with me. And anytime I would try to communicate with him, like it was something about talking to him. He can just talk and talk and talk and talk in circles. And I completely lose my thought. Like I'll say something and he'll pick one small part of it apart and like demand some kind of answer based on that. And he just like wore me down to the point where I couldn't even speak. Like I didn't have a voice against him. And it was out of concern that he was doing it. There was no malice ever. But the way he was doing it was just, I felt like 
a child, and I hated it mm -hmm. a lot. So then came the resentment and the bitterness. Correct. And, and so how long after that period was it, I'm done? It was a slow burn for, I guess, about a year and a half. Then he he kind of like kept pressing me to be like, what's your deal? Like, you never hang out with me. Like, you never want to do anything. And it's like, well, it's the only thing you like doing is going to dinners and watching TV. So um, then we, you know, we started talking about separation, which he was intensely against. And I had to basically kick and scream for six months to be like, I am not living here anymore. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So how devastated did that make you? I was absolutely freed when I left. Freed in a good way or freed in a bad way? In a good way. Okay. I mean, we didn't, we didn't leave on bad terms. I felt like my soul was in a cage when he was there. It was like I would be this bright, vibrant thing with my clients, with my one and a half friends, and then I would get home and I would just, I was just- Shut down. I would completely, completely shut down. Mm -hmm. And he he's also the kind of guy who does everything for me, you know? He's a guy who brings gifts. But like, instead of flowers, you know, why don't we like walk by the river or something? Why don't we like do something? And it's kind of, it's, it's more of you need- gifts of affirmation, meaning that not here's some flowers because I love you, but let's go on a walk because I want you to know that I want to be with you. That kind of gift. Yeah. Yeah. And like he did want to be with me and he did try to show me, but we just didn't speak the same language right. at all. Right. You know, we rapidly found we didn't really like the same things and, you know, it, it all fell apart from there. Which is why I 100% recommend anybody have premarital counseling so that all of these things come out. You know, you're looking at from a different perspective. I'm sure you, you know, love is blind and we just, mm -hmm. we're in love and it doesn't matter because we're in love and we'll get through it. And so going through all of this problem and this devastation of divorce, how did you pick yourself up by the bootstraps and, and return and get to where you're at today? Well, it was it was a pretty rough uh, few months. Like I said, I'm an immigrant and my credit score is really unimpressive. So I was looking for an apartment on my own. I was looking in Queens and Brooklyn, but I found this wonderful shoebox on the Upper East Side. Um, I moved there two years ago. Just this studio. It's cute. It's big enough. You know, it's a good little in between place. And when I am down, this is something that I really like about myself. I will like climb to the top, like with every ounce of effort that I have. So, you know, I, I built my bed, my coffee table, my bookshelf. I decorated everything. I hung stuff. I deep cleaned. I did all this stuff and I, I felt good. Mm -hmm. And my job was the same and my commute was easier. I didn't really tell my clients for a while. And I just, I continued to speak to my therapist a lot. And I uh, crushed Bumble <laughs> for a few months. And uh, yeah, I eventually, you know, I was fortunate enough to stumble across my boyfriend, Chase, who is just like my best friend in the entire universe. And I'm glad that I had that trauma and that time to 
stop making exceptions and excuses for myself because when I met Chase, I was like, I was like, I'm not changing anything for anyone. Like, this is me, take it or leave it. It is what it is. You know, if you want me, you can stay. If I want you, you can stay. But, you know, I'm I'm running this show. Mm-hmm. And I think I came on a little strong mm-hmm. probably at the beginning, but now I feel like I've really coasted into it nicely. Like my business is going well. I'm saying yes to every opportunity because I don't have anything at home holding me back. I have an equal partner for the first time who I don't keep anything from and he doesn't keep anything from me. It's amazing. How liberating is it to be able to say you have a co-equal? It's amazing. Liberating. Mm -hmm. There is no part of me that would ever feel ashamed to tell him anything, Mm. which is nice. Mm-hmm. But what, is it not also scary at the same time? I guess it's, there are aspects of it being scary, I suppose. Like, in, in what way? Well, uh, because you have to be completely vulnerable because you've set the bar high. And so just one inconsistency could ruin all of the trust. It could. I guess I guess that is scary, but I didn't say that to make you scared of it. I oh, was yeah, yeah. you know, just asking how that because a lot of times, you know, and, and and it's needed. It's needed to be able to tell your partner everything. Mm-hmm. But it's equally important to understand that that is reciprocal and you're not telling them to hold you accountable. You're telling them to have a conversation mm-hmm. about what you're going through, what you're dealing with in life, not to be browbeaten of that was the worst decision you could have made. Right. You know, and, and so when when people start using the word co-equal, I think that we kind of misconstrue exactly what that means because we sometimes just assume that there is something we could say that's just going to make them leave, especially if we're dealing with identity issues as it already is. Mm -hmm. And so in this relationship, do you feel like that you could tell him anything without fear of repercussions upon you? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's nothing that's so outrageous that I that I would have to tell him that would make him, you know, so angry he would leave forever, so upset he would leave forever. That's amazing, and I, I'm just glad that you have that and you can experience that after your horrendous divorce. <laughs> Me too. And you deserve that. Thank you're, you. You're worth that. And, and I think that, you know, sometimes we forget our worth. You know, we've been raised and treated certain ways. And even in past relationships, we kind of carry that baggage into. And we don't expect to be able to be loved, to be treated like we're valued. And and so we need to remember that. We need to remember, you know, uh, you talked about growing up in a Christian home and how everything had to be right. And, well, and that you had to be all things to all people. You know, mm-hmm. as Paul said, uh, but even Jesus took naps. I mean, we see right. where we see where he just went away from everybody, and it's so important for us to do that, but still have the confidence to know that I can go to my partner and tell them whatever is going on without fear mm-hmm. that they're going to just have an outburst or that 
you feel invalidated some way. And so I'm really glad that you have that. Thank you. So let's talk about your success here as a personal trainer. I, I mm. see you have uh, really made it to the top here, I guess I could say, and being uh, Time Out New York's best trainers in New York City list. Yeah, that is me. That is you. Can you believe that happened? Yeah. Or do you kind of go, this can't be real? No, no, I, I can believe it. You know, despite all of the insecurities with people liking me or not liking me, when I have uh, when I have goals, like career goals and things that I really want, like I said, I always work really hard to get them. Mm -hmm. And I, like, right when I moved here, I studied my ass off to, you know, get certified uh, with, with NASM, which is one of the better ones. Got a job right away, just constantly learning, constant obsessive nutrition research. I, I did all of the groundwork. You know, I'm still constantly learning and I apply it to all of my clients and I have a different relationship with all of my clients and they all have different needs. And I'm I'm there to meet all of them. And most of my business now is from word of mouth because I'm good at my job. Yeah. Because I've I've committed to it and I know that I'm good at it. Well, I think that that uh, being a personal trainer is a lot like being a therapist. There's not a cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's different and everybody responds differently. So if there is one thing that that you have learned throughout all of this trauma, and we're going to we're just going to call it all trauma. <laughs> everything uh, that happened everything before today. that happened before <laughs> before meeting your your the guy you're talking to now. Taylor, was that? So, oh, no, that, that, that's the girl. Chase Chase, Chase, Chase. Taylor was the girl. Yeah, the okay. one I would rage all night. With. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Prior to that uh, relationship, whatever you want to call it, all of that past trauma coming out of that, what would you tell somebody who may be in that same situation? The thing that worked for me is just forgiving yourself and making lists. I had things that I wanted to do each day and my schedule was totally screwed up. All of a sudden I was by myself. It was freeing, but also directionless. So I made lists of things that I wanted to accomplish in the day. I tried to like make sure I was eating well and uh, I forgave myself because Christians tend to flog themselves repeatedly. I know that's more of a Catholic thing, but let's, let's umbrella term that. We just uh, I think I could agree with that across yeah, the board. Yeah. Just like constant self-harm over things that already happened. And so the thing that really like the mindset that helped me was like, okay, that happened. It's over. I can't change it. Everything I've said and done in my entire life has already happened. So what am I gonna do now? What am I gonna do in the next twenty minutes? And with that constant attention to the micro things in your life, the macro pulls itself together. Like you don't need to worry about the macro. It's the lists and the self-reassurance that you're not Satan's niece. I, I like how you put that. I'm going to have to write <laughs> that down. You are not Satan's niece. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, Alicia, uh, it's been good to talk to you. Now, we will have a part two here in just a few moments that will be on Patreon. Uh, so we want to invite you to come over and listen to that as well. Where can people find you? 
Well, you can find me on Instagram at Elysian Form, E-L-Y-S-I-A-N dot F-O-R-M. And obviously, Muscle Spasms is on the Be Frank Network website, BeFrankNetwork.com. All right. And if you want to get in the best shape of your life, you need to call. You need to call me. You can message me on Instagram. I'm not going to give my phone number, address, social security number on here, but definitely reach out and ask. All right. Well, it's good to, good to have you with us. And uh, as I said, stay tuned here for Doc Talks DX, where we talk about the diagnosis and things to help with that. You can find me at thedocbrian.com on TikTok, doc underscore Brian, Instagram, thedocbrian. There's a link at the bottom of my website from all of my social media. Feel free to follow us there. And we look forward to having you with us next time. Make sure to check out the second part of this episode, Doc Talks DX Diagnosis on Patreon. Thank you once again for being on this with us. And we will see you later.